good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily and this week's long-form episode. Apologies for the uh, delayed publication of this episode this week, but uh, because of the market volatility, my guest for the, this long-form had to reschedule, and uh, we will be recording Friday morning, probably for a good thing, because each day the markets have been doing something different. There have been three bank failures in the U.S., three in the past week. And so we're going to kind of break this open with author of the Macro Compass, Mr. Alfonso Pecatiello. I wanted to know what's happening. It seems like every day some new information is coming out that really puts a, a, another a, another layer to the story of what's happening in the banking realm, uh, not only in the U.S., but globally now. And so I think Alfonso can walk us through and give us some education of not only what's happening with with, with these banks, but also what the implications are for this to continue further down the road. And I will ask him what it means for precious metals as well. So an important conversation we're having in this Friday's long form. Special thank you to Arizona Sonoran Copper, Fireweed Metals, and Western Copper and Gold for your continued support of the podcast. If you can, if you missed any episodes this week, any of the corporate updates, please go back to the website and listen to those episodes. We had some pretty good conversations with a number of new companies as well that uh, that I wanted to bring those stories to the listeners. So uh, let's just jump into it. Important conversation with Alfonso. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. It's with great pleasure to welcome in a new guest to Mining Stock Daily, uh, specifically on this week of volatility and to try to help us all understand more of what's happening with the uh, frequent change and curveballs from financial news hitting us uh, in our newsfeed every day. Happy to welcome in the author of Macro Compass, Mr. Alfonso Pecatiello. Elf, welcome to the pod. Hey, Trevor. Thanks for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Very early morning for you. Appreciate the effort. Yeah. Uh, no, I appreciate you coming on. I, I know it was a. It was a. What what a week. I mean, you you have just started uh, publishing your premium newsletter, and mm-hmm. so it kind of feels the you know the first week of March was really maybe the first time it was all hands on deck for you and your subscribers. Yeah. Look, it's. Uh, Trevor, it's been quite a journey in markets. Um, I have to say, seeing this kind of banking stress brings me back to old memories. uh, And it's not pleasant memories, to be honest. And that's exactly when people need some guidance and some background on me first. I mean, I'm lucky to uh, have been in the trenches in the treasury department of a large European bank at the management level for eight years. Uh, before starting the Macro Compass, which is my research firm and in portfolio strategy uh, firm. Um, so I've been there. I've seen exactly the problems that are now at the very center of the focus of attention for investors. So happy to be able to say something about it from an informed perspective of somebody who has been literally there. A general conversation before we really dive into this. Uh, it's, in those eight years, did you... S- see the problems in the European banks that are percolating now? Easy to say yes uh, now, right? right. Uh, but the answer is indeed yes. Uh, 
look the uh, regulatory landscape and the accounting frameworks that are used in the banking system Trevor are yeah prone to moral hazard to say the least and we can talk about what silicon valley bank did yeah. oh my god really bad way to run a bank but also we should really talk about the loopholes the big issues that there are in today's regulation framework, today's accounting framework, because the incentive scheme is just wrong all over the place. So it's been kind of interesting to follow. If you just take the headlines of what you've been publishing in the last week, you know, you started off by, you know, answering, is there a banking crisis going on to, is there contagion risk? And then like at that moment, the narrative kind of, there was this, you know, there's this great battle between, well, is there contagion or isn't is there not contagion? Is SVB and Signature just this one-off type of thing? All right, Credit Suisse has been an issue for a number of years. People that have been involved in markets have seen like, you know, that bank could fail for the last 12 years. Uh, but you, but then last night you published, at least last night my time, you published an interesting newsletter really kind of opening this up about, you know, there's a lot more stress in this system, especially on the U.S. banks because, they don't have the regulatory stress tests as the European banks do. And this is really quite fascinating because it, it, it the narrative continues to jump the ocean, right? So we're going from yeah. U.S. regional banks to Credit Suisse and European banks. And now we're back into U.S. banks. And I guess, you know, kind of walk us through your timeline of how you saw this starting mid last week, you know, the Wednesdays or Thursdays when SVB news yeah. and then where we're at today. So look, let's talk about SVB for a second, Trevor, because I want people to understand the extent of the regulatory and accounting issues that there are in the US, particularly with banks. So look at this. The regulator has basically forced banks to own a large amount of bonds on their balance sheet. And why? It's because the regulator says, look, if there are outflows, you need to have liquid assets that you can dispose of so you can service the outflows going out. And what are these liquid assets the regulator says? They're liquid enough. Well, clearly cash. So if you have a deposit at the, at the Federal Reserve and somebody's taking the money out of your bank, Trevor, you just call the Federal Reserve, get the money in, give the money to depositors, match. There's nothing as liquid as cash, right? That's perfect. But then the regulator also said, well, you can buy some bonds. That's fine too. We'll assume they are as liquid as cash. There will be no haircut. We will assume treasuries and mortgage-backed securities are as liquid as cash. Now, what banks did is, well, look, these bonds normally give me a return, which is higher than cash. I'm a bank. I'm in the business of making money. The regulator says I can buy them. And from a regulatory perspective, they will be treated exactly as cash. So you know what? I'm just going to load up on bonds. Now, normally speaking, when you load up on bonds, you try to manage your risks as well because, you know, bonds have interest rate risks, they have credit risks. So as a bank, you need to manage those, right? And Silicon Valley Bank just didn't do that. I mean, that's so much. They had a dual problem. They had a concentrated deposit base where people could just take their money out very rapidly all at once because we are talking big tech founders. So it's a, it's a large it's, it's, a, it's a small number of tickets on the deposit side, large size tickets. 
So if they all decide to take their money off all at once, it can be really a rapid bank run, very, very rapid. Because Silicon Valley Bank didn't have mom and pop deposits, sticky retail diversified deposits. They had big tickets deposits. They can, they can run away very quickly. On the asset side, well, they ended up buying a gigantic amount of bonds and they didn't hedge their interest rate risk. They didn't do a proper risk management. Now the, and then they went belly up. Now, the problem is, was this, this was definitely mismanagement from Silicon Valley Bank. There is no justification for that. But let's talk about the regulatory incentive schemes. That was your question. Like, why could they do this in the first place? A bank below $250 billion in assets in the US has a super lux regulatory and accounting framework. Let me, let, me, let me say what it means. First, some context. $250 billion in assets is not a small bank. In Germany, I'm European, in Germany, the third largest bank in the country has a $180 billion balance sheet. So that's a 200 plus billion dollar balance sheet bank is not small, Trevor. I mean, it can be pretty decently sized. Nevertheless, the ratios I was talking about before, all this regulation, if you're a bank below $250 billion in the US, you are not subject to these ratios. So you can buy a lot more risky bonds if you want, because the regulator is not going to check whether you own treasuries, in which amount do you own treasuries. They're not going to check you on that. They're also going to allow you to have a very non-diversified deposit base. So there is another ratio called net stable funding ratio that is valid only for large banks in the US. They cannot have this business model, Trevor, of having a large amount of large tickets account from tech founders that can fly away all rapidly. They cannot do that. If you're a bank below $250 billion, you can. So you have this regulatory arbitrage between above 250 and below 250, which is incredible. In Europe, you don't have anything like that. The regulation is tighter in the first place. And we don't call small a bank with $250 billion, and we don't give too much leeway uh, to small banks to basically act like cowboys. So Silicon Valley Bank did a terrible job in risk management, but where are the regulators? Why this lax treatment for banks that can be pretty large? That's, that's a serious question to ask here. I, you know, obviously, you know, in America, things get political very quickly, and there's been a lot of finger pointing that... The Trump regul the the Trump administration lacks some of these regulations. Uh, there's you know there's the, you know the Dodd Frank regulations didn't work. This type of thing, you know, where where where's the truth in this story? Look, the truth is that overall the regulatory environment in the U.S. is not as tight as it should be. And I'm using Europe as a benchmark. I mean, we in Europe don't do we don't do a lot of things. Well, let's say, but we are very risk, um, you know, uh, risk averse. So when it comes to regulation, it's very, very tight over here. And if I compare that regulation to the US, let me give you an example. In Europe, regulators stress the interest rate risk that a bank is running on their balance sheet. So they basically force banks to say, hey, if interest rates go up very rapidly all at once, what happens to your capital? You'd need to tell me in a stress scenario how much money you'll be losing. 
and banks are forced to report the results every quarter, Trevor, of the stress test. You go and look for a similar thing in the US, it doesn't exist. It's not like there's a softer version, it does not exist. So regulators in the US haven't created a way that forces banks to report how stressed they will be in an environment where interest rates rise very rapidly. So what, what's the incentive scheme there? If you're a prudent bank, you'll do the risk management anyway. You don't need the regulator to force you to do the risk management, right? If you're prudent, you'll do it in the first place. But regulation exists to make sure that the incentive schemes are aligned. And a bank incentive scheme shouldn't be to run a huge amount of interest rate risk on their balance sheet. So because they know from a moral hazard perspective, if they go belly up, the government is going to rescue them. And this seems to be, there are some loopholes in regulation in the US and the lax regulation in general, or at least laxer than Europe, makes it seem so that moral hazard can be unfortunately practiced much more often in the US. And I think Silicon Valley Bank applied a decent amount of moral hazard. They took a large amount of risks. They knew what an interest rate swap was. If you look into their balance sheet, they did use interest rate swaps in 2021 which are a way to hedge your interest rate risk as a bank. And then they decided to take them off in 2022. So they know how to do this, of course, but they just chose to act like cowboys because regulation as well gave them an incentive to do so and that needs to be corrected. I guess, is there any rhyme or reason why they took that hedge off in 2022? I just don't, I don't understand why. I mean, that was the most volatile time for not only interest rate risk, but also duration risk, right? Look, it's like interest rates were at zero in that period, and the Fed was effectively promising never to raise interest rates again for a long period of time. And people are blaming the Fed for bad risk management. But guys, like the Fed made a lot of mistakes, one of which is not seeing inflation coming. They kept policy too easy for too long. But risk management, it's something up to a bank and to regulators to enforce that that risk management must be done because reporting is required very often. Stress testing is done. So you can't blame the Fed for Silicon Valley Bank taking off the edges. You can only blame Silicon Valley Bank for taking the edges off. Look, regulation here should require US banks to report, Trevor, on a quarterly basis like in Europe, what happens to your balance sheet, to your capital position if interest rates rise very rapidly. Let's put some context, because the regulator in the US doesn't ask banks to do that, but some banks still do that on a voluntary basis. So let's take JP Morgan. Let's move from a small bank to a behemoth, huge bank. The largest, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So JP Morgan says they stress their entire balance sheet. And not only bonds, Trevor, they stress everything they have, loans, mortgages, bonds, a long-term bond issued. So all sides of their balance sheet together. And they say, what happens if interest rates go very rapidly to our capital position? And they found that if interest rates go up two to 300 basis points, which is what happened in the US recently, their capital would go down overall by seven to $8 billion. Okay, that's, that seems like a lot, right? Seven, eight billions. JP Morgan entire capital of the bank is $270 billion. So you're talking about 5 6% of the capital being wiped away from this move. It's not nothing, 
but it's five to six percent. While Silicon Valley Bank had their entire capital being wiped away, right? right? So this is the difference between doing risk management because you're a large professional bank and because regulation is a bit tighter in the US if you're a large bank. But the issue is that regulation should be much tighter than that in the US. It should force all banks to report this, Trevor, not only banks that choose to do so. Like in Europe, there should be a stress test on this. And we shouldn't treat a $249 billion bank like a bank that doesn't need to be regulated. That's just wrong because it gives the wrong incentive schemes like it did with SVB. Well, if if you're going to lose 5 to 8% loss on capital, a bank like JP Morgan, they're bankers. I mean, if I lose 8% in my portfolio, I'm just a retail schmuck. Like it doesn't mean much to me at 8%, but because they're bankers and, you know, count every single penny that they can get, that's very meaningful, but that hits their profitability in the long run, which also dictates how they do business in the future, huh? That is correct. So you're, you're now, let me, let me say that the big take here is that people are now extrapolating that what happened to SBB will happen to many other banks. The reality is that more sophisticated banks do much better risk management than SBB did, despite the regulation in the US being very lax. So regulation needs to be fixed. Even if it wasn't that tight before, still large US banks have done, obviously, a better risk management on their interest rate risk than SBB has done. Nevertheless, you're touching on a good point, Trevor, which is if I'm taking a hit on capital and I'm a bank, and I know my deposit base is going to be a bit more attentive to what happens, right? They can fly away more rapidly. I need to be more careful, right, overall. The macro implications of all of this is that money is going to flow to the safest form of collateral, to the safest money centers, and credit is going to dry up for the riskier fringes of the economy. And this is a bit of a problem. Because we were already in the part of the macro cycle where the tightening of the Federal Reserve started to play quite some negative effects on the economy. And we had seen it already in the housing market, which was basically frozen. We had housing sales down 40% year on year. Nobody's buying, nobody's selling, it's frozen. And you start to see the first defaults on these collateralized mortgage-backed securities like Blackstone recently defaulted on it. KKR and Blackstone gated redemptions from the real estate fund. So if you're going to want to get your money out of this real estate investment trust, you can't unless a very small proportion each month. So, you know, it's tricky. It's already tricky. And now you are basically freezing, most likely, the credit flow, the flow of money towards the riskier side of the economy because banks are going to behave much more defensively after this episode. So short, the quick take is I don't think this is a systemic liquidity problem for the banking sector or a systemic interest rate risk management problem. But I do think that this could turn into a credit problem later on because credit was already under pressure. It was already kind of frozen in certain instances. And now you're making the problem bigger from that perspective. Was this just... A part of the cycle. I mean, we saw a lot of that speculative capital heading into places like Silicon Valley, into those very speculative uh, tech equities. I mean, that was the story of 2022, 2021. And we saw it finally start to deflate a little bit, but there's a lot of 
you know, there's still a lot of hopium out there that, you know, once the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department backstop the depositors, well, we're back on everybody's too big to fail now. So let's go in and we saw yesterday, let's buy calls on the NASDAQ once again, because that's been the name of the game for the last three or four years. But that 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 seems to continue to deflate. It only got so long. And here we are this morning recording pre-market and the market's already down and kind of calling that bluff a little bit. But what is this? It, it, so if credit if credit's freezing in the housing department, if credit's freezing for those non-revenue generating venture capital businesses, yeah. where is credit going? I mean, where can you find it? Is it, or is it just is this the beginning of a very deep dark recession? Because if money's not flowing in credit, then it's not going anywhere, and people are going to get stuck. And uh, I couldn't say it any better, Trevor. So if credit isn't flowing to where people need credit, which is the places that are in trouble, as you said before, credit isn't being generated at all. Now, at the Macro Compass, I developed a, an index which is called the Global Credit Impulse. And it looks at the amount of money, and I mean real money, not financial money, Trevor. I mean the money we use, corporates use, the money that flows to the real economy. And it tries to measure how much of that money is being created in the five largest economies in the world, how much credit is flowing to us. It's a great series because the more money we get, the more likely we are to spend and to boost economic growth. And if you can see that, like in 2021, that series was through the roof. And obviously, GDP growth was very strong and earnings were very strong. Clearly, you created so much money that people had a lot of spending power all of a sudden. And now you look at that series in 2022, before the early 2023 banking stress that as we are discussing is going to freeze credit further, most likely, that series looked pretty negative already. So the flow of credit wasn't that strong at all before this. It's now probably going to stop even further. What's happening is you call this in banking collateral hoarding. So what happens is what you want to do is you just want to you know, cling on as tight as you can to the safest forms of money out there. So you don't want to generate credit on that collateral. You just want to make sure you own that collateral very close to you. So the money flows to where it's safest. See what's happening already. Money market funds in the US got an inflow of over $100 billion in a week. Money market funds are basically super tightly regulated funds that can literally only buy T-bills from the government of the United States, and they are effectively almost implicitly guaranteed by the government. So you're looking at basically government money. It's like buying T-bills. So what, what people are doing is, well, you know what? I don't want to have money at the regional bank. I'm going to take the credit away from the fringes, and I'm going to move it to the safest form of collateral, collateral hoarding. And when that happens, credit doesn't get generated at all. So it's not, your question is correct because it's not where is the money being generated? Where is the credit going? Credit is going nowhere. It's just people are hoarding collateral in the safest forms of money. And that is generally a pretty negative thing for growth and inflation. And you look at this rapid disinflationary environment, which can easily morph into a recession. It sounds bullish for the dollar, actually. 
Am I wrong to speculate on that? Look, this is a very, very good take because when I say this, people are like, okay, this is the death of the dollar. The Fed will need to cut interest rates by 400 basis points. Yeah, actually, in a recession, the Fed cuts interest rates by three, 400 basis points. Correct. Um, that's what happens normally. But here, you're talking about a flight to the collateral itself. You're talking people trying to hoard dollars or forms of dollars like T-bills, which are like short-dated bonds that are effectively dollars themselves, just of a very short duration. So what you have here is a deleveraging episode, Trevor. It's like money doesn't flow to credit anymore. It's not credit creation, but it's hoarding on uh, collateral. And that is generally positive for the dollar, despite the Federal Reserve cutting rates. We have seen this happening a couple of times in 2001. The Fed cut rates in 2001 by 475 basis points, huge cutting cycle in 15 months, and the dollar appreciated a little bit in that period. So you have these very, very weird uh, situations and, and macro uh, scenarios going on right now. Yeah. I, I want to take a step back and kind of talk about the holistic approach of um you know the fed put right now yeah the fed and treasury announced the bank term funding program earlier this mm -hmm. week and mm -hmm. reading that news release elf i was just i was really taken back because it made it sound like everybody's too big to fail we'll have every depositors back whether the fdic insured that 250 million dollar deposit or if it was greater than that we're still going to insure that I'm not exactly confident I understand where this money's coming from. And so in the back of my mind, I continue to think, all right, well, they're just going to print the hell out of it and backstop everybody. So in general, in general terms, the cover of this situation looks like quantitative easing. And mm -hmm. I want to get your take. If, if that's the right approach to think of this, is this QE light, a QE infinity version two? What, what is going on here? No, so let's put some order in it, Trevor. Let's first understand what QE really does. What QE does is it takes, the, the, the Federal Reserve creates bank reserves. They use these bank reserves to buy bonds from the private sector with QE. They take the bonds away from us, from the banks, from the private sector. They lock them in on their balance sheet. And you don't see them anymore, Trevor. They're gone. They sit there, they're gone. So what does QE do? It takes interest rate risk, duration out of the system because you as a private bank, as a private person, you don't need to buy these bonds anymore. There is the Fed buying the bonds for you. And it also takes the collateral away from the system. It's gone. It sits on the Fed balance sheet. You don't know when it comes out. It's over. It's there. So QE is very powerful because it takes the bonds away from us and gives the bank these reserves. And so the banks at some point will be like, what do I do with all these reserves? I don't have bonds anymore. I'm making no money. And then they will try to buy some more assets. They will buy some credit spread, some corporate bonds. Some, they, they will basically enact that flow of credit that facilitates a rebound of the economy. That's the idea beyond QE take the money out of the system, take the treasury out of the system, lock them in there. This program is a bit different. What it does is it doesn't take collateral out of the system, but if you do have the collateral, if you do have the treasuries on your balance sheet as a bank, you go to the Fed 
and say, I need money. Here is my treasuries. Here is my collateral. Fund me. Because the depositors are flying away and I need funding. Instead of selling the bonds on the market, Trevor, and locking in the losses coming from unhedged positions where you didn't have the protection for higher interest rates, your bond will be worth 80 cents on the dollar. So instead of selling the bonds, taking a big hit like SBB had to do, the Fed says, no, 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 this is safe collateral. Treasuries are the safest collateral in the world, and we are going to enforce that. That's what the Fed, the Fed is doing. They just start, but and they just safe. started that this weekend. Is that right? Like this is a brand yes, new tool. That's, that's, correct. that's correct. So then the Fed said, "Well, just give them to me. New tool. No market valuations. No market haircuts. I don't care if they're trading at eighty cents, at seventy cents, Trevor. To me, the Fed says they're worth a hundred. So." Take, that's what they say. It's, it's ridiculous, but that's what it is. Give me the treasuries, add 100, and I'll fund you. I'll give you the money you need because the depositors are flying away. So don't crystallize your losses. Don't hit your capital positions. Don't hit your P&L. Don't sell these bonds at 80 cents. Give them to me at 100. I'll fund you. Compared to QE, this doesn't take money forever away from the system. It doesn't take interest rate risk away from the system. It temporarily takes the collateral away from the system and lends against it for one year at very convenient rates, at least very competitive rates for banks. So what this is, while QE takes away duration and collateral from the system, as we explained before, is a very powerful tool, what this does is it strengthens the value of collateral. You now cannot debate whether that collateral is worth 80 cents, 70 cents. It doesn't matter, Trevor. Banks are not forced to sell that collateral anymore. They can just go to the Fed and they say, there you go. Ah, you say it's 100. Good. Give me the funding at 100. So the Fed is enforcing that the value of these treasuries is not debatable. As a collateral value is 100. And this is the strength of this program. It basically backstops banks from being forced to sell. If banks would be forced to sell, what happens, Trevor, is that you have a fire sale on the safest collateral of the world. Because if a big bank, say Wells Fargo, for example, has a similar situation, and in order to meet their deposit outflows, they need to sell treasuries. They have a large portfolio. If they start selling very rapidly, it could interest rates go up even further because price go down, interest rates go up, it hits other banks even further. Same problem. It's a cascading effect. They need to sell more treasuries to raise more money to meet deposit outflows. It would be a fire sale on what instead is considered to be the safest collateral in the world. And the Fed just said, no, guys, you don't need to sell them. Don't worry. Just give them to me. I'm going to value them at 100 and I'm going to lend you money against it. So QE removes collateral and interest rate risk from the system permanently or semi-permanently, basically, this program instead strengthens the value of collateral, makes sure that it's worth 100 in the eyes of the beholder. But it feels like that collateral is being socialized. We interviewed Peter Bookvart yesterday, and he had one yeah. of the most profound sound bites I think I've heard on this podcast in the five years I'm doing. And he, and he, he literally said, this program 
feels like another nail in the coffin of American capitalism. And I don't, I don't take that lightly. So what is your reaction when you hear something like that? Do you agree look, with that? The, the thing is, look, the thing is, when we designed regulation after the great financial crisis, Trevor, we decided that treasuries were as good as cash. The regulator said to banks, you can buy as many treasuries as you want, and I'm going to give you no haircut, no liquidity haircut. I'm going to ask you to own no capital against that as a potential offset if prices go down. It's also known as risk weight, 0% risk weight on treasuries. So basically, the regulator said back then, and we signed off on this globally, basically, by saying these treasuries are as good as cash from all purposes and intents. So now we find out they're not, because if you don't hedge interest rate risk properly, the value of this stuff can be 80 cents on the dollar. And all of a sudden, you need to sell them, maybe, because depositors are flying away. And when you realize that, oh my God, it's not, it's not really the same as cash. What the Fed is doing now is making sure that they're true on their promise, that this is worth 100 cents on the dollar as collateral value, not market risk value, not market value, but as collateral value is worth 100 cents on the dollars. It honestly doesn't send a great signal when it comes to encouraging banks to do their homeworks better on the risk management. This is why regulation now needs to be enforced because otherwise what you're doing, Trevor, is you're saying to banks, you know, act like cowboys. Yeah, 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 yeah. The shit hits the fan. I'll give them to me and I'll take them at 100. No. We got your back. This is an, we got your back. I did, and this is just the wrong incentive scheme. I mean, it's, it's, I understand the backstop measure now because if you don't do it, you risk that fire sale cascading environment we discussed just five minutes ago, right? If you don't do these backstop facilities, then some banks might be forced to sell treasuries, price go down further, rates go up, other banks have another problem, they have to sell more treasuries to raise money, and then it's, it's a cascading effect. But you need to do something on regulation. You need to force banks to have the right incentive schemes. And we discussed it at the beginning of the podcast, there are so many regulatory loopholes, including not stressing banks' balance sheet for the proper interest rate risk. They need to be corrected as soon as possible. Uh, it, th this program that they, they created out of thin air over the weekend while everybody was out uh, skiing or spring breaking uh, had effects. Uh, we learned, I learned last night, I don't know exactly when maybe you got the news, but over the last week since this happened, $303 billion U.S. Yeah. was added onto the Fed's balance sheet in this in this program. It sounded like banks needed it right away or or they're just taking it because it's an easy program for them to to you know to give them a better foundation. I just when you see this number 303 billion dollars in less than a week how do yeah. you take this Alf? Well, interestingly the program was used only for 11 billion because it was just done very quickly and only was was available for 3 days when the report was done. But banks used a lot the discount window, Trevor. I mean, the discount window is that stigmatized facility that during the great financial crisis, nobody wanted to use because if you used the discount window, it meant you were bust, basically. The market interpreted that you needed the money so badly that you were basically bust. 
And nevertheless, banks have used it very rapidly. I think also encouraged by the Fed because the program wasn't available yet. The new program wasn't available yet in the few days running into the big problem of SVB. But what it tells me is that SVB is obviously not the only case where because of the misregulation, because of the mismanagement of risks, especially for banks in the $100, $200 billion balance sheet size, there must have been some more banks that acted like cowboys and needed funding. I I felt the same way, Elf. I said that it sounds like they had this thing planned, ready to go, even before SV. That you know they kind of swatted into SVB. Yeah. It really feels Look, like there was more. There was they're planning for more. Look, the uh, as I said, the regulation loophole behind two hundred and fifty billion dollars is massive. It's big, like it's it's just the regulation is is very little below that threshold and that that must mean and if you do the homework and the numbers on some banks you realize that there are some other business model banks in the US that are under pressure for the same reasons of svb very concentrated funding base terrible risk management on your interest rate risks cowboy attitude because you know you, we don't need to hedge risks at the end of the day because you know what at the end you know it's going to be fine it's you know this bifurcation i think is the right word you'll have money flowing now to where people feel it's safe to own collateral that's what's going to happen so short dated treasuries money market funds large money centers that do first of all better risk management second they're better regulated and third they are just too big to fail in any case so that's where money is going to flow and i'm really afraid that you know money is not going to flow to small regional banks and even at large banks, the creation of credit, the flow of credit to the to the real economy, especially to the to the fringes parts, uh, it's not going to be there, Trevor. And that has macro implications. I'm curious to think a little bit hypothetical on this lending program to the banks. Mm-hmm. You know, back in 2008, you know, what we saw was. A lot of that money created by Ben Bernanke that flowed into the banks wasn't actually put into liquid forms. They were used by the banks for share buybacks and better their profitability. Mm -hmm. Is there a similar risk in this situation that this lending program to these banks, the, the ones that have a better foundation right now, maybe not the regional banks, but the big banks could be hoarded and used, put back into their own equity to improve their profitability? Ah. I don't know. I have to think about it, but I don't think it's the immediate reaction. Look, I mean, this is like a backstop facility, Trevor. So you use it if you're in trouble, right? Also because, think about it, like you post collateral, you get funding, but you get funding at Fed funds plus 10 basis points. Now, Fed funds are 4.5%, soon to go to 475, plus 10 basis points. So you're looking at getting funding almost at 5%. It's not like it's quite expensive funding. It's not very cheap. You pay 5%, right? So you don't volunteer to do this unless you are in deep trouble and you need to monetize your assets without taking a haircut. Then you go to the Fed. So this is a backstop facility. Um, and I, um, I don't think that large banks are going to particularly need this one because they did better risk management in the first place because they were better capitalized. But what worries me the most is the flow of credit to the real economy. Like even if you're a large bank now, 
you are going to act defensively. And that just compounds the, the negative flow of credit was already existing before this banking stress. What does that mean for normal people? You know, my <laughs> wife, my kids, so, myself, my, my house, my estate, what do you know, people listening, what do, how does this affect us? You know, like, really give us some actionable things that we need to be paying attention to or need yeah. to do to kind of get through this rough time. So look, the uh, very first thing is managing your liquidity risk. This was true always, even before the banking crisis. If you have money over $250,000 at a bank, it's not your money. It's an unsecured loan to the bank. Okay, so you're an unsecured lender. That's who you are. If the bank goes belly up, normally you are in trouble unless they find some creative solutions. So especially in this environment where money market funds and T-bills yield much more than bank deposits, it would be smart above $250,000 at least to diversify your liquidity. So to take your money, not give it as an unsecured loan to the bank and not being paid for it, but rather park a little bit into a government-guaranteed money market fund or just buy the T-bills in the first place because they're safer and they yield more. So it's a no-brainer. This was always the case, Trevor, even before banking stress. That's the first actionable uh, thing. The second has to do with your investments, right? And how do you look at those now? If I am right on the flow of credit slowing to the economy, you are looking at higher odds of a disinflationary recession. You're looking at that economy which was already stagnating before, like it was slowing down pretty rapidly, and this would you know, exacerbate that trend. So what do you do then? Well, when an economy slows down very hard, Earnings don't go up, so risk assets actually are not doing very well. Equities, etc. They, you know, you need to wait for the Fed to come to the rescue big, wait for earnings to take a beating, and then you can buy them. So we are not close to that point, I would say. I'm not very, very positive on the equity market in general, to be honest. What does well in these environments is to have bonds on your portfolio because if the Fed has to cut rates as a reaction then you will benefit from that via bonds. And also gold does well, especially in the second leg of the cycle where the first deleveraging has already happened because gold, being part of the financial system nowadays, also gets it from deleveraging. Remember, Trevor, when people have to deleverage, they need to sell whatever asset they can, including gold. Do you remember in 2020, in the first leg, gold was actually hit back then. And people were like, why? Why would you sell gold? Well, because... If you're margin cold, if you're deleveraging, you're going to sell whatever you can, any asset you can, including gold. So when you get past that first phase, then gold is generally super attractive. So I think the scheme should be take care about your liquidity. Be careful about your own personal leverage in an environment where the economy slows down. Try to have some bonds on your portfolio. And then look at gold. And at a certain point, it will look really, really attractive. That should be. The, the scheme here, later on when the Fed has come to the rescue and the recession becomes a thing, later on you can buy equities at a discount, but it will take a while until that happens, I think. I, I, I want to ask you about generally the, the metals commodity complex. It, you mentioned gold and I, and I very much agree with you. I might actually push back and think that people are starting to run into gold already, kind of sniffing this out. It's like <laughs> the ghost of great financial crisis past. Um, 
but I, I I'm kind of racking my brain all this week. Like, like, and I've said this on the podcast in the last few days that after the events of late last week, I feel like the, the recession officially began early, early March. That's just my thoughts and opinion. And given the move in the bond market, it seems like this recession is going to be deep and it's going to be felt hard by everybody. And if we are hitting that type of recession, I have a lot of skepticism about where we're at with industrial metals, because if this thing's really going to slow down, who wants to own industry? Yeah. And on top of that, thinking very long-term, okay, if, if, if the base metals complex looks undesirable, what does that mean for industrial capex, knowing that the industry has been so underinvested for 20 years? Are we, do we need to get through another treacherous moment where nobody's funding new projects, even though supply <laughs> demand in the long run is so much higher? I'm afraid you're raising very valid concerns and base metals are, <laughs> well, it's very weird because China is trying their best to reshore up their economy. And in some cases, China accounts for over 60% of the global demand in some of these base metals like aluminum or nickel. So you have theoretically a short term source of demand coming back. But if you look at the global economy and take a step, a step back and you assume that the recession will be coming, then no, guys, but industrial metals don't do well when global demand, generally speaking, goes down, even if China tries to offset it, generally speaking. So I agree with that take. And there has been a, the first part of the year where I preferred industrial metals to uh, precious metals because of the Chinese reopening story. And, you know, copper and all these this, uh, metals did well. But if you ask me today, what would you do about it? I would say, look, Industrial metals, you, I don't have a particular view because there is the China boost maybe, but there is the global disinflationary topic we just discussed. Precious metals, okay, let's take a step back. Maybe in a couple of months, they look super attractive. But this bifurcation you're discussing, I think will, will, will benefit precious metals more than industrial metals in the second half of the year. I do agree on that. The other idea I want to, and I know we're kind of buttoned up against our time, but I, I want to finish this this with this idea of financial repression and um it really feels like it was solidified over the weekend that the the central banks and the government are going to direct capital flows where they see fit and that's part of that financial repression plan i guess i you know your general sense of where we're at like are we in this new era of financial repression is the government going to control the capital flow and then in turn will they kind of reorganize that flow to hit you know you know industrializing their way out of this mess once again well look um at this very stage of the cycle i think policymakers have realized two things the first is if you print real economy money, money in the pockets of people like we did in 2020, then you can do a lot of things, like a lot, including pumping up growth. But you pay a price. If you do too much, then you get inflation. Governments haven't done any sort of proper money printing 
after the great financial crisis, they were all in deleveraging mode. I mean, take Europe, austerity, austerity, austerity. Don't spend, save, repair your balance sheets, right? Now they found out the power of doing that, Trevor. And that's important because I think that leads to a phenomenon of more inflation volatility. Let me try to explain this. So for the last 10 years, we had inflation stuck between uh, 1% and 2%, wherever you looked at. And no vol, like always there. 1, 1.5, 2, 2.2, that was it. Like there was no really, not a lot of, of macro volatility around inflation. Now that you get governments that have understood the power, again, they've seen it, the power of their fiscal spending, They've also seen the problems with inflation. It might be that they use again this lever la- uh, later on to reshore the economy. But it might also be this leads to other inflationary episodes when then the central bank is forced to tighten, governments are forced to stop spending, and you get this rapid disinflation, you get these cracks in the economy like we are seeing today. So what I expect going forward is an inflation pendulum. It's much more volatility around the inflationary backdrop much more volatility in markets, and you know, long term, the system hasn't changed much, Trevor. I mean, we accumulate more and more debt to try and shore up growth above our potential means because demographics is what it is, productivity is what it is. So the only way to generate growth is to lever up more. We will keep doing that. And financial repression long term is the only way to sort that out and make sure you have some equilibrium in that system I expect, though, this financial repression to be much more challenged over the next decade because of these jumps up and down in inflation, because of this fast reaction function from policymakers, printing money, stop printing money, tighten policy, ease policy. There is going to be much more volatility in inflation, in markets, and in policymakers' decisions over the next decade, which makes markets more fun, but also much more volatile, and us investors having to really get into the weeds of macro to try and be better prepared to do some risk management. And it sounds like it's going to, that the timeframes of all this volatility is expedited compared to where it was 2007, 2008. Yes, it's, look, we have lived through a period of no, nothing happened. So people were encouraged to take risks, buy the dip, close your eyes, buy the Nasdaq, buy some bonds, go to sleep, make 10% a year. And this is, it seems like a while ago, but Everybody was a wizard between 2010 and 2020. You bought a house with a mortgage, you became a millionaire. Trevor, think about it. You just bought a house. Just bought a house, you locked in a mortgage, house prices went up 5 to 10% a year. Asset prices up 10% a year, 15% a year. The only thing you need to do is get on the ship, buy, go to sleep, become a millionaire. And I think that kind of low volatility, very positive backdrop for asset owners will be challenged because when inflation becomes more volatile, so does the uncertainty in markets and people need to be better prepared to do risk management with their portfolios over the next decade. Alf, this was a great conversation. It was well worth the wait. I really mean that. Thanks, Trevor. No. Thanks, Trevor. I appreciate uh, it. I, you know, I, I get your emails and I will say what you write and the way you communicate has been somewhat of an influence on me and how I am approaching not just this volatility, but, you know, the markets in general. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad we could make this happen. And I really hope that we can do it again because I, 
I'm with you. I don't think we've seen the last of this. Well, Trevor, all I can say is thanks for inviting me and for the work you do for um, people that listen to this to your products every week. Um, you know, all I do on the Macro Compass is just try to break down what's happening using my experience in markets, trying to explain it in plain English, no need for ultra-difficult jargon, like try to guide people in these uncertain environments and also make it applicable with portfolio strategies, ETF portfolio, because there is a lot of talk out there, but people really want to know what am I supposed to do with all this macro information. So I do all of that on the Macro Compass and hopefully that helps quite some people. Uh, Tell people where they can find the newsletter. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, If you go on the macrocompass.com, that's the website. You'll find several products out there where you can choose how often you want to be informed, to which level of depth. Do you want to be a more tactical investor, a more long-term oriented investor? It's a lot of material out there. And um, again, the intent is to break down what happens in this complex world in plain English and keep you guys informed in these very uncertain times and also help you with making decisions with your investment portfolios. It's on the macrocompass.com. Right. And how, how's the launch been? It's only been like, what, oh. a couple of months, huh? Excellent. I can, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of people that are signing up. It's, it's really a lot. Thousands of people from the macro professional investing space, hedge funds, institutions, but also a lot of private investors, which makes me happier, I have to say, because the mission is to really try to educate and pass on insights and give perspective and actionable insights to the average guy, Trevor. So I'm very happy that people are signing up. Hopefully, also people listening to this conversation will find it worth to check out the Macro Compass. Yeah, it's definitely worth your time. I mean, the very least, follow follow Elf on Twitter because I mean, just a great ton of great content and insight. I'm going to let you go. Uh, have a great weekend and uh, try to get some sleep. Thanks, Trevor. Talk soon. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.